Welcome to Northbridge. My name is Ray Brandon. I'm the pastor uh, for preaching. And um, I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. You know, as uh, Grace and I return from some time away, my heart is filled with gratitude. We are thankful for a number of things. We're thankful for our church and congregation. We're, we're thankful for the time away that you allowed us um, for your understanding. Um, I, I think that unless you've really um, served as an elder or in vocational ministry, um, it's difficult to understand the particular pressures um, yet at the very same time, you've been gracious in your understanding, in encouragement, and in love for this time of refreshment. So thank you so much. Uh, to our elders uh, and Cody, um, as far as I know, everything went really well. Um, if, I, if it didn't, I don't know about it, and that's, that's fine, too. Um, you know, but they are they're men who are principled leaders. You are blessed to have principled leaders serving you in this congregation. And Cody has amazing, amazing skills. And um, I'm so thankful uh, to, uh, um, to my wife and my family. I, I'm very thankful. Um, spending 30 days um, with the same person is either a real joy or a trial. <laughs> And I had a great time with Grace. And I asked her if she had a great time. And at the end, she did. She said she did. <laughs> she had a wonderful time. We had a great time together. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful to her. To John Gilfellan, um, some amazing messages preached. He had a difficult assignment. Which one of you would want in this climate to preach a series on God and government. Any takers? The work that he put into that series was immense. And I'm very, very grateful. He challenged us. Um, we had the opportunity. We went to church three times on Sunday while we were away. So we caught John and Cole, who was preaching my son at Citygate. And then we went to this small church um, there near where we were um, every Sunday. Um, what was amazing was Cole was preaching, and, and we went, so, the, so he was preaching in Matthew, it was, and they were preach, he was preaching through Matthew, that's where City Gate is. Well, so was this small church. So we like heard one sermon on the same passage every Sunday twice, which was uh, um, from two different preachers, like 1,500 miles apart which was a wonderful thing. But again, for John, just an excellent exposition of the scriptures. You know, and in response to that, to the congregation, um, I'm thankful because I haven't been back very long, so I haven't had a whole lot of conversations. Um, my my um, electronic communication, I'm sure, is like full of, of, of all kinds of different things. I'm not saying responses to the, to the message, but what I have seen and what I've read has exhibited gracious curiosity, which is so good, so good. Just a gracious curiosity. You know, John had some hard things to say to get us to think, right? There were some hard things that he had to say. 
You know, the scripture has, the, the Bible has some rough edges, right? If we're really honest, I'll be honest with you. I don't like everything in this book, <laughs> right? The scriptures has some rough edges um, because of the limits of our faculties, because of our own sinfulness, right? Because of the desires of our hearts, right? It has some hard edges. Gracious curiosity avoids all kinds of things. Um, it avoids one major thing, that the empathy trap, just simply when, when the word of God confronts us in our understanding, um, sometimes it hurts our feelings and we fall into the empathy trap, whereas we get up caught up in our own emotions that we end up avoiding a lot of things. Um, and, and many things, namely one, actual obedience to the scriptures. So that gracious curiosity is a good thing. Now there's one thing, that, and I have to, this is like a, a caveat to our being away, and John, who repeated every week, I'm not sure if Pastor Ray agrees with this. <laughs> Which, when he said it the first couple of times, I was like, thank you, John. That's great. <laughs> but I realized, well, that's natural. People are thinking that, right? That's just a natural thing. It was good that he, that he said that. So please don't ask me, did you agree with him? Because when you think about the, 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 the landscape that he had to cover, right, it's not really a fair question. Right? There's just too many things. And, and then we'd have to explore, well, what do you understand? What, what do you think he said that we're either in agreement or disagreement with? Um, so, so here's what we're going to do is um, we need to have more conversations. Here's what I've noticed in the few brief interactions that I've had. That's, that there's some who've said, that was great, and I've questioned why. There's some that have said, I really don't know about some of the things that he said. I don't know about some of the application that he said. And I've questioned why. And here's what it has exposed. It has exposed a crack in our biblical foundation. Right? Probably one of the things that John said that we need to follow, it was an encouragement, is we need to continue to study God's word but there have been individuals who have tackled the same things that are confronting us in our past, right? People like um, the Scottish Puritan Samuel Rutherford, right? If, if, you, if you want to get at some of the things that John said, in fact, we're going to have some discussions, and I think his book, Lex Rex, will be like... Um, uh, a, a uh, something that we need to read in order to have these kinds of conversations. So we're going to have some conversations about that series in order to spur on this gracious curiosity so that we can address the crack in our foundation. Because if you agreed with John, but agreed for the wrong reasons, there's going to be problems. If you disagreed, but you disagree for the wrong reasons, you're going to have problems, right? What we have to have is we've got to lay again the biblical foundation, and he set us on a path, like it or not like it, agree or, or disagree. His exposition of the scriptures was very good, right? So there's some things that we need to do to follow this series up. So look for those 
conversations that we have will have together. And, and just know this, that like our primary text is going to be scripture and some historical texts that will cause us to dig, not tweets or Facebook feeds. If you're getting the majority of your information about these issues from those kinds of places, um, you, you, you're not going to get at building this foundation. In fact, you will get to confusion, right? So we need to go back. We need to go back to um, the Bible, and we need to go back to actually prior to um, those that founded our nation, what were they reading and what did they understand about these things like Romans 13 and how we, um, who is Caesar and how do we submit to Caesar? Um, what does that look like? What happens when Caesar breaks his own laws? Those kinds of things. So we will do that. So again, uh, um, we come back and we are grateful um, grateful for our experience, grateful for um, our congregation, just grateful for what God is, is doing in our lives and in our church. Uh, let's look at the text for this morning, Titus chapter 2. We're going to cover uh, the whole chapter this morning in what is a Mother's Day message. Um, so we're going to answer the question. We're going to get to the question of what womanhood is for. And you're going to find out if, if that question is like at the top of your mind, which I, I want it to be there, but you're going to go through this and you're going to say like, wait, wait a minute, um, where is he going with this? I thought we were talking about women this morning. We are, right? It's going to land in our application. So if you're looking to the answer um, of that particular um, question, which we will get to that, um, but we have to, womanhood is a piece of the puzzle, and even motherhood is a piece of the puzzle. Actually, I have avoided preaching Mother's Day and Father's Day sermons for a long time, um, because um, uh, the topic of motherhood is too narrow. You know, I would I would, I would have something for moms in the sermon, but I just, if you notice in the past, I just keep going, preaching through the text, and there'd be something I could work in there to say, happy Mother's Day. But motherhood is often too narrow. It's just, it's too narrow. It's not that it's not important. It is very important. Um, but it excludes some, some topics that are akin to the gospel. And, and motherhood is temporary, too. It's, it's not something, it's a temporary, like, but here's why I've avoided mostly, um, is that um, the sentimentality, the cultural sentimentality of Mother's Day, right? So I have heard Mother's Day messages that honestly make, just want to make me puke, because you leave going like, no wonder Jesus was so perfect. Look at his mother. You know, like a, a message on Mary on Mother's Day, like, look at his mother. She was so wonderful, Right? That is not helpful. <laughs> That's not helpful. And you know, there's women that aren't mothers, right? So, you know, I, I, I think the topic of womanhood is appropriate for Mother's Day because there is that every woman, as a woman, has a unique role purposed by God, right? So, so that's, why, that's why I phrase that question that way. And the other is, I, I don't think our culture is, I, I think we have an opportunity here. 
I want to seize now Mother's Day for the household of faith. Because, here's a prediction, I'm not a prophet, but I, I don't think that Mother's Day and Father's Day has a long future in our, in our culture. You know, it's probably going to change into something rather androgynous and generic sometime soon. So I want to get rid of the sentimentality. Um, I, I, I want to, to put it in a biblical category that's helpful for everyone, right? And I also think, this is just me, I also think we need to push it later in the year because it's just in Michigan, not right that Mother's Day has to always be cold. <laughs> right? What is with that? I think it should flip every other year, Mother's Day. If I, anyway, let's get into the text. Here we go. Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be models of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Here's where we're going. God demonstrates that the unique household roles display the glory of God in the work of Jesus Christ through the home and the church, right? So this is, this is the focus uh, of this particular passage, that God demonstrates the unique household roles, namely manhood and womanhood, husbands and wives, the uniqueness of his creation are displayed they're, they're displaying God's glory the, through the work of redemption, the work of Jesus Christ into these two interconnected households, home and the church. So two points this morning. First, the grace of God appears in Jesus. It's at the middle of this passage. We want to look at the middle of uh, the, the passage. The grace of God appears in Jesus. And secondly, the grace of God appears in the household. That's how we're going to organize um, the discussion, the preaching this morning. So I want to begin in the middle. Look at verse 11. 
It says, the grace of God has appeared. It's speaking about, this is, this is the gospel, this is the good news. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Does that mean every last person? In other words, in Jesus, when Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, does everyone universally is saved? No. It means, if we take this and we understand from Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, right? It means all kinds of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to the ends of the earth. That's where the gospel is moving. That the grace of God appeared to all kinds of people in Christ, in Jesus. And it's doing something. It's doing something. So the grace in Jesus is working in the world to all nations to accomplish something. What is it trying to accomplish? Look at verse 12. And there's two particular things that the grace of God is working in two ways. Training us, and then look at the, the, the conjunction there, the and, and to live. So it's training us in a negative way. It's training us in a negative way. It's training us to do what? What's the word there in your Bible? Come on, class. Renounce. Say no. Right? There's pressures external. There's patterns. Romans, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that, there's, that, that you as a Christian are going to be constantly pressed into these patterns. And saying that we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That there are these, these pressures of ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, again, we look at the word, word ungodliness. We've been in 1 Timothy. In fact, what you're going to see is you're going to see some parallels. It would be a great study to connect right, what we've been studying in, in household in 1 Timothy to Ephesians chapter 5 and Titus chapter 2. There are three very parallel passages that contain the household code. And so you will see some parallels. They, they all talk about this idea of godliness, which we have phrased is, is simply this, right? Godliness is what? Doctrine and living put together. Right? Doctrine and living put together. Right? It's not enough to simply have right living if it is built on the wrong foundation. Why? Because Jesus gave us a parable about that. He told a story about that. You can build a house, but if it's built on the wrong foundation, what happens? Right? The winds of life will blow against it, and it will crumble. You have to have the right foundation. That's what godliness is, having the right foundation, the right teaching, the right doctrine. It's not enough to just have the right doctrine and not have the right living. They go together. So anything that is ungodliness is what? Well, it's having one and not the other, or not having either. Right? That's, it's not having either. Right? Wrong teaching, wrong living. Right? You, you have to have right understanding of God's word and a right application to life. Right? That is godliness. And he says, if there's another pattern that keeps you from those two, then what do you do? Come on, class. What's the word? Renounce. Right? You say, no. 
right? You say no. Renounce. Two-year-olds are good at that. We need to be better, right? Renounce. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So there's, what, pressure from outside, but the worldly passions, right? They, the worldly passions are, you have to have Velcro for worldly passions, right? You've got to have, like, the hook inside of you. And the, world, and the, the worldly part is that part that, that sticks, right? There's, there's, a, there's something inside of you that actually will stick to that, right? So you've got to work on renouncing the sin that's in your life, but also not allowing yourself to connect to worldly passions. We need to renounce those, but then to live, right? This is, this is the model of repentance. It's a turning from this and a going to that. And so to live in what? Self-control. Now that's mentioned three times in, in this passage. Self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We're covering the landscape of this whole chapter, so I'm not gonna hit on everything, um, but I want you to see here, it says godly lives, what? Right now. Now, you can say, well, um, well, there was a certain form of family life back then, and that was for back then. And, you know, there, you know godly lives, this is only applies to back then, godly lives in that present age, but you know, it's not really possible to live godly lives in this present age. Some people look, and read, look at their Bibles that way and read it that way. That's not a right way of reading the Bible, right? In this present age, the word of God is sufficient for every age. And as Paul writes to Elder Titus here on the island of Crete, in a very difficult and ungodly city and situation, he's saying it's possible in your present age, so it is the word of God possible in this present age to live a godly life. That's what he's equipping us in this very moment through the word and through the spirit to do. He's equipping you right now to live godly lives in this present age. And yet there's this waiting. Waiting doesn't mean like I'm waiting, I'm, I'm biding my time, but it's a word of longing. Longing for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glorious glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us. Here, this is all the gospel. Gave himself up to redeem us from what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness in our own hearts and lawlessness in the world around us. And to purify himself, what is the mission of God? What's God about? He's making a people that are his. He's a jealous God. He wants people for his name. It's the project of Genesis to Revelation who are what? Zealous for good works. Listen, if you're waiting and not working, you, you don't understand what the Bible says here, right? That this longing for Jesus involves action right now, right? It's a pointing towards the one that we're longing for, right? So, so here we have... The grace of God appears in Jesus. It works in two ways, to renounce and live. This is, so this is the four. Notice that at verse 11, it's giving the reason, and we started in the middle. We started with the reason for this passage. Right? So now we've got to get at like, what's happening for, that works in this way. Well, we'll notice verse 1, it says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And now you have what is the household code. Here. He's, he's teaching the house. Now, which is it? Is it the home or is it the church in this passage? It's kind of a trick question. 
Which is it? It's both. In fact, they're intermingled. You know, they're, they're intermingled. So what we see is that the grace of God, like we, we, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation, but the grace of God here appears now in this present age where? In your home and in the church. That's where the light shines bright. That's where people see Jesus. In your home and in the church. And notice it's not individualistic. Oh, we have to press against the, that. It's, it is home, collective, church, collective. And what is God, what is the, the bottom? He's trying to do what? Make individual disciples for his name? No, a people for his name. The grace of God appears in the house, the church in the home. So it starts with older men. So it's giving instructions. And it starts with, with older men. Now, I'm not going to get into the, here's the older men, and, here's, and we're not going to go, that would be a great study. I, I want to have a much higher view, a more of a 5,000-foot view of this passage um, than maybe a 500-foot view of this passage. It says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound, in several things, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, the, the character of, it mentions these different groups, and it mentions character development of these groups, and that is a, that's a valuable study. But just notice it says that they are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, and then sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. This is the characteristic of those that are older men in the church. And then it says older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Okay, so there's some character things there, that they are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, not controlled by much wine, and here's the, but they are to do what? What is their role? What's the active role? They are to teach what is good. And so, so who's their audience? Verse four, and so train the young women to, so, so here we have, what is your job? If you're an older woman, I won't ask you to raise your hand. Like I didn't ask the older men to raise their hands, right? I won't ask you to raise, but if you fit in this category, what is your role? And I would say it works in both households, right? This is, these are intertwined. So home or church, what is your role? It is to teach and to train the younger women. It says here, and so teach and train younger women. Now, I've, I've heard, you know, that um, as I have talked with some older women or I've talked with their husbands and they say, well, yeah, I, I can't do that because the younger women aren't interested. Wait a minute. I don't see an uninterested clause. Right? Um, I don't see, like when it says, you know, you know, older men, you're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness, unless... Right? There, there, there's no clauses that uh, except for, you, you don't find them for any one of these groups here. Right? This, is, this, is, 
This is God's word, and he's laying it down for us because this is not only what's good for us, it's good for those in the household, and it is what? It is great for his glory. So, so, so he says here that, older women, your role in the household is to teach what is good. And by teaching what is good, right, teaching, we, we tend to think like, well, if I put a, a video on YouTube, I'm good. You know, I, like if I put the information out there in a Google Doc, if I send it an email, I'm good. Does it really work that way? Like disembodied knowledge, does it really work that way? Now what it says, it says also train. Right? So you have to show them how this knowledge actually works in real life. This is hands-on training. It says here that the older women are to train the younger women. And then this is unique. And this is why I say, like, look at Ephesians 5, look at 1 Timothy, and look at this. Because this is interesting. It says, the younger women to love their husbands and children. That's different from Ephesians chapter 5. In what way? Does Ephesians 5 instruct women to love their husbands? Yes or no? Does it? To love their husbands, right? So yes, okay, so yeah, okay, I see where you come from. Maybe a trick. What's the specific thing? Go to Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 5. Let's go there. So you can see it. Let's read it. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Jesus Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, in language, in word, in, with the word love, does Ephesians 5 say for wives to love their husbands? No, good. Okay, I'm tracking. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my work now, okay? Now, in principle, does it say that? Okay, good. I'm asking better questions. <laughs> good. Yeah, in principle, yes, it does. What's interesting here is, is in, this, in this description of the household code, it says for women to love their husbands and their children. Now, I don't want to talk about loving their husbands, but I do want to talk about loving children. Doesn't that seem odd? Let's talk about that on Mother's Day. Moms, love your children. 
You say, well, isn't that what this day is all about? I love my child. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves writes an interesting thing about love. And so he describes, and he actually describes the love of a mother for the child. And I think he's right in his, his philosophical understanding of love that applies to this, that there's something in love that is natural and good. When a mother loves a child, there's something she gets back. In fact, what he's describing in this is something that is universal of everyone. When you love someone, there's something that you get back. I think in our culture, that thing, and this is what C.S. Lewis describes in The Four Loves, where love goes wrong is when you love that what you get back more than loving that person. I think we have a problem in motherhood because I hear it. I love my child. I just don't like them. They're a pain. I actually hear that. I see it. Now, I'm not on social media anymore. Some of you are thankful. Great. But I would see that. You see, there's something, there's something there. So I want to challenge you moms, older women, right? It's, it's I'm going to say, our responsibility, right? But I'm not putting myself in that group. It's our responsibility as older women to help mothers understand how to love their children, right? Motherhood is not simply a status, right? There's something about the glory of God in that. Motherhood can be turned into idolatry, and we have to be careful that we don't do that. That as mothers, and I would include fathers, right? But we have our own set of problems, right? That we don't turn our roles into something that they're not, but rather we look at what God's word instructs us. There's something good, mom. You need to learn to love your children. Now, children, understand this. Your parents love you. On the way home, I don't want any of you going like, do you love me, mom, or do you like me? Come on. Like, that would be the worst Mother's Day ever. They do love you. But they're as sinful as you are. And see, what this reveals is that we need the gospel in our homes, right? Because it says to be self-controlled, pure. And then I want that phrase, working at home. I want to talk about that in application. Doesn't that strike you as strange? I can't do that. We're not set up to do that. How do we do that? How do, how do we obey that? Kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. There's a pattern here that if, that, that in, in, this is Mother's Day, but there's, there's something here that we almost always have to combine Mother's Day and Father's Day, manhood and womanhood together. If not, we have an imbalance or a piece of the puzzle and we don't see the big picture. That there's a pattern that God's trying to establish, and we said this, that God demonstrates that the unique household roles, men and women, display the glory of God in the work of Jesus Christ through the home and through the church, and we need to know what those are. 
and how to live according to those. Otherwise, the word of God will be reviled. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. There's a, a likewise. In fact, there's a couple of likewise, verse 9 in this passage, which means likewise means you're including what? Something that came before it. So that's a great discussion that you should have about this passage. What from verses 5 and earlier is included in verse 6, where it says, there's this, this short sentence to the younger men, likewise younger men to be self-controlled. Right? So that's it for younger men. Be self-controlled. But then he goes on and he addresses now Pastor Titus, and he puts Pastor Titus, though, I think verse 6 to younger men, and verse 7 to Pastor Titus actually goes together. And he's saying, Titus, because you're in this category of younger men and you're an elder in the church, show these younger men, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching. Why? Because the younger men are doing what? The younger men are married to the younger women and they have what? Children. Right? So he says, now Pastor Titus is doing the teaching the same that I'm doing here. But you younger men who have children, you're doing what? The same thing that I'm doing here, you just get to do it six days a week in your home, in your household. And so he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponents may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Right? So there's, we might, we're going to save some of that for manhood on Father's Day, Right? But that's, that's some really important stuff in there. Now, here's, here's what, and I want to put this together and kind of wrap it up. So the, the grace of God appears in the household, church and home, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and Pastor Titus. And then, isn't this odd, bond servants. Now, we talked about slavery and that kind of, you go back to that message in 1 Timothy. But here you had bond servants, it says, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are well to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, the God our Savior. Okay, so don't you think that this is odd? Ephesians chapter 5, Titus 2, 1 Timothy, includes bondservants, household slaves, when it's giving this household code. In your own Bible study, you're like, why, why isn't this set off to the side and dealt with in the category of economics, right? Why isn't there a section for this group of people? Because it's part of the grace of God appearing in the household. There's, there's something that we're missing. Now, now I want to make application of that. I want to I wrap everything up, answer that question, and answer the question of what is womanhood for partially. Like, there's so much more to say. Notice verse 15 before we wrap things up and answer some questions. He says this to Pastor Titus. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Take that statement. How do you think preaching ought to happen from this pulpit based on that? 
If this is the word of God to elder pastor Titus there, and he's saying, look, here's how the home should operate. We talk about in our Bible study, tone and mood. What's the tone of that? Right? And what's the mood? The tone is how is the preaching, how's, how's the message to come across? But also what mood should that evoke or does evoke in its hearers? He says, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. In other words, he says, declare these things. That's part of this teaching and training in these things. Exhort, that's an encouragement, encourage these things. And when there's patterns that are not in line, what should they do? As elders, rebuke with what? All authority. And let what? No one disregard you. This, This is the word of the Lord. That is hard. I don't want that job. I think I'll assign it to one of the other elders. But this is what? This is still part of what? The household code for the household of what? The church. Which means that it's good for what? The household, the home. They fit together. Now let's wrap this up. In, in the, on the island of Crete in this day, one of the rivals to Christianity was Gnosticism. Now, I won't go into what Gnosticism is, but um, it mean, Gnosticism dealt with special knowledge. In other words, what we could say is that there were those that said, well, I actually know better than God's word. I have this knowledge here that gives me insight, that allows me to do this. And I would say that we are still dealing with that same kind of, of false theology, false doctrine, because the Bible, the word of God, if we say, and we're going to sing, you know, that Jesus is our way maker, right? Even when we don't see it, what do we do? We trust with eyes of faith, right? We, we take God at his word. The word of God is sufficient for our church and for our home. We need nothing more. We ought to have nothing less, right? Do we know better than what God says here? Do you know better? If not, we need to be people of simple faith and take God at his word as to how our roles in our home should operate because it's by God's design. Now, in, in our day and age, we, we, uh, we sometimes run into the, the issue of an, an individualistic home or an isolationistic home. But here we see in he, that we do not know better than God that the, that, that the home is to be doing what? The home is to be building up the church. Right? This is, the church is the eternal family. And we have these bonds that are familial, biological, but they are also temporary because we are coming into the eternal kingdom. And so we have to be careful that we don't strive for, um, the, for discipleship that is detached from the church. In other words, some of us would like the Benedict option with Amazon and Netflix and Shipped, right? Where we live at, on our own island, and yet we, we are this self-sufficient biological home. That's unbiblical. We are meant to be together, even as this household code is intertwined in the scripture. They, the two work towards the one main goal, and what's the one main goal. It is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. 
So where do we see the grace of God appearing? We see the grace of God appearing in household economics for Christians. That's what I believe this passage is about. And I word it that way, household economics. Because economics has a standard, right? You have to have an economic standard in order to do business or to do trade. And, and that's where I see the bondservant here always in this household. There's a certain way of, of living that I think our modern minds miss, and you see, if we think we know better than, than God, then what do we do in our household? We substitute the gold standard of God's word in household economics for something else that's flim-flam that will crash. So, so let me put it this way. <clears throat> if you have currency, that currency has value behind it. It has to be valued at something. So at one point... We were on the gold standard, right? So you could only print as much money as you had gold. And the mining of gold was like 2 to 3% of what they had in reserves per year. It would grow by that. So you could print 3% more bills because you had that much more, but it had a standard behind it. What happens if you don't have... Now, I'm, not I'm illustrating, I'm not advocating... For economics here. I'm illustrating, right? So I'm not giving a lesson in economics. But you have a standard, right, that is your currency, and you're able to trade because there's a standard. But what happens when you just begin to print money like crazy and send out checks? What happens if there's no... It's going to eventually crash, Right? You can't continue to do that. It's, it becomes worthless, right? There has to be a standard. There has to be a standard. There's an amazing thing when you think about household economics and you think about just economies to scale. Because economies to scale are simply based on what? Economies to scale, simply when you use that word scale, it's like what's happening down at the bottom is what's happening at the top. Right? And so again, I'm not, I'm not a prophet, but one of the amazing things, and, and there's, there's this ironic comparison that converges in Bitcoin. You didn't know we were going to get from Titus 2 to Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin has replicated, the, the, has, has replicated in a virtual way gold. And so there's a standard behind, it's called blockchain computing. What the interesting thing is, like, it, it's, it's threatening. So those that understand technology and economics and computing, like, we've just gone through this big boom where Apple and Google and Amazon, like, have all made tons of money. But the very way that they're doing computing is not based on a gold standard. And the amazing thing about Bitcoin is it's based on a standard, right? And so there's this convergence between your dollar and, and computing. And it's, it's an amazing, an amazing thing because this is how economies rise and fall. And, and so those that are looking at the economy, they're saying like, they're, they're, what they're saying is, 
the way that we're doing computing and the way that we're securing dollars, because how, do you, how many of you spend actual dollars? And how many of you use little cards? So what are you spending? Electronic currency. So here's this convergence. It's an interesting thing, but it all comes back here to household economics, right? It all comes back. So our whole economy, right, is based on household economics. Here's the question, and here's where it's like, oh, this is amazing. The question is, what's the standard? What is the standard? Right? Our economy will only survive if it's based on a standard. Otherwise, it's going to move from instability to what? Something else that's based on a standard. Stability. And there will be winners and there will be losers when it crashes. It's the same principle here. This is what, this is what Paul is getting at in the church is that um, we need to follow God's standard. That's what he wants to show in the household. And we all have particular roles, husbands, wives, and bondservants in the home so that God's glory might be known. Right? What is he, what is he trying, to, trying to do? And he, he's, he's saying here, and I think that phrase that we see in Titus when he talks about, um, when he talks about younger women, Submissive to their own husbands, I'm sorry, self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Do you see that the word home happens twice there? One, it's mentioned in home, but what is the word husband? What's the definition? It's an economic definition. It's one that's bound to the house, right? That's the word husband, bound to the house. So if you, if you say, I take you to be my wife, and the wife says, I take you to be my husband, marriage does what? Binds a man in language and in reality to what? The home, right? The man's role is to build the home by his name as a husband. That's your role. And here it says, that the wife is to build the home. You see what this passage is saying, this. It's saying that the economics of the house is to be built on the standard of Jesus. And I don't think it's just talking about, see, this is where we, we tend to isolate things like, this is my spiritual life, and this is my work life, and the twain shall not meet unless I'm telling somebody at work about Jesus. And what, what this passage does, what actually these three passages do, it, it totally upends that. And it actually says, no, your main economic obligation in life is the building of your home in every category you can imagine. And that homes are to build the church. And if you miss that, then you're not building your home on the standard. And you're bankrupt. And you don't... So this has implications. This has implications. Why? Because the training there is to renounce ungodly patterns and to live, right? If you read verse 11, then to live for God's glory and good works. Let me apply this. Why is it that the bondservants are there? And what are the women's role? We've got to keep focused on that. If men and women 
are called primarily to build the household on the gold standard of Jesus and his work, then we have to ask ourselves the question, how can I channel as much time, energy, and resources into this project? It's the one thing that God's called me to do. So am I channeling all my time, energy, and resources into this project? Let me ask you this. This gets to the issue of the bondservants. Do we work in ways that interfere with our witness in the world? Do our, our work patterns, is the way that we work in life interfering with our witness in this way, Titus 2, in the world? In other words, oftentimes I hear, I, and now it's not said this bluntly, but it's there. I can't obey God's word because I have to go to work. Well, let me say something radical. Get another job. Find something else to do. Don't forsake the main thing that God's called you to. You see, I think one of the patterns that we have to really think about as Christians is like if you're simply a wage earner, in other words, the only thing that you can give to your employer is more time. If you're a wage earner, you really have to think about how you're balancing that with obedience to God's word. The reason that the bondservant is here and that you see that bondservant is because these homes were also little factories. Now, I don't want to elevate having your own business and being self-employed as something that is more spiritual. But it may be a better pattern. Because one of the ungodly patterns that has happened since the Industrial Revolution has taken our husbands out of the home for extended longer and longer and longer periods of time, and now the wife out of the home and away from the home. And now we live in a, an age, in a world of incredible isolation, relational isolation, um, due to COVID, right, and the things that we have. So, so maybe, see, the bond servants were there because why? This was an exercise of hospitality for Christians. And what were they doing with these individuals? Well, certainly they were wage earners within the home, but what, what, was, the, what was the plan for that servant? Right? They were learning a craft and a trade so they, they could do what? that they could repay whatever debt that they owed, that they could, maybe they're learning a craft or trade and they're gonna go out and they're gonna actually now start their own business so that they can earn a living in that way. Or they're such a good manager and they love that home that they will actually give themselves for a lifetime to that home and become a lifelong bond servant, a manager in that home. Right? These are little economic units. We have several men um, that, I won't mention them by name, but I love driving by their house because like, there's always something that they're creating in the yard. Right? There's, there's always a project that's going on. And it's like some of them work a job, and then it's this project on the side, and they're just like their home is this factory. I think that we need to think about. I, I don't want to say that... like. I want us to be careful. I don't want anybody walking away and saying, like, what Pastor Ray said is I have to quit my job on Monday and start a home business. No. But I really do want you to think, is there a pattern 
that the world is pressing you into that you say, I can't be obedient because of this. Get out of that. Get into this. Because this is what will put on display. This is what you were created for and will put redemption on display. What this means is maybe a college education isn't worth it. <gasps> Did he just say that? Statistically, a college education has been devalued since about 1980. So if you got a college education before 1980, you got a deal. After 1980, you were robbed. And it gets worse. It's getting worse. Okay? Now, we, I could go into a whole bunch on that because I have college students. <laughs> but I'm just saying, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe you need to figure out, like, how to work for a small business owner and learn his trade and not amass so much debt. There's a problem with, there's a, there's a problem with enterprise in, in our pattern is that young people are coming out with 50, 100, $200,000 worth of debt. Are you going to be an entrepreneur and carry $100,000 worth of debt? What are you going to do? You're going to work for the man and be a wage earner. And you're going to get pressed. Possibly get pressed into an ungodly pattern. It's something just to think about. So I know this kind of maybe is, you know, knocking you off balance a little bit. It's not prescription. So don't take it that way. So let me ask you to be a little more personal. Are you training in godliness? Are you teaching and training in godliness? And then finally, how is my household building a healthy church? Right? The goal of the word of God is not healthy disciples. It's healthy disciples in healthy homes that are building a healthy church. I don't know a whole lot about, um, just because I haven't been around, I'm sure I'll be caught up tomorrow, but I hear there's young people serving, and I know that there's a challenge. Usually we see this dip in the summer of disengagement in resources and in serving, and I hear that there is an effort through these summer months. Now, granted, we have the best summer in the whole world happens here in Michigan, but it doesn't mean that we should disengage spiritually. And I hear that as a church, we're striving to be engaged, right? To, to beat that dip and to be engaged. Maybe, you know, that's the challenge is to be engaged in that way. Now, I haven't preached very much, much in a month, so I've like been really long-winded. And you've been very gracious. So let me pray. Dear God, we thank you. We thank you for women and for mothers. And we thank you for your scriptures opening the door to insight into their incredibly valuable role and how it all fits together. Lord, I pray that you would convict us, that you'd move us to discover what could not be said this morning in this passage and the passages that we're studying. Lord, I pray that you would build the home economics of your people. The, the course of this world um, 
is a downward spiral, but we are looking up forward to the blessed hope. Lord, I pray that you would raise up generations of optimistic young people who are filled with integrity and dignity because they know that Jesus reigns. And that whatever happens around us, you've given us this pattern and the person to cling to. Now help us individually, for we have repenting and work to do in the grace of Jesus. And may the grace of Christ appear even more and more. Amen.